uncertain or difficult. Maybe we've tried to make strides in our marriage or our career or our walk with Christ. Yet in doing so, it just seemed like we would take two steps forward and three steps back. So we glanced over our shoulder at the past. And the past all of a sudden looked really appealing to us. And we concluded that it would be easier to simply turn around and go back to our former way of doing things rather than continuing to move forward. This is where the Galatians are. They find themselves in a tough spot. And the way forward doesn't seem obvious to them or easy. So they decide to turn back and go back to what was easy and what was familiar to them. And the Apostle Paul then explains in this letter to them and to us just what a grave mistake that is. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4 and look at verses 8 and 9. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight. What a joy it is to be gathered as your people, to honor you, your spirit, and your son. And Father, we have not come here tonight to go through the motions or to check some kind of religious box. But Father, we have come to see you. We have come to meet with you, with your Son and your Spirit, desiring to worship you, to honor you, and to be changed by you. And so we humbly ask, Father, please, please, Use these profound words to change us from the inside out. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the Apostle Paul answers three important questions here. Number one, what enslaves us? Number two, how are we enslaved? And number three, how can we be free? Number one, what enslaves us? Paul here calls them not gods. These, quote, weak and miserable forces in verse 8. But what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> These weak and miserable forces. Well, the, the Greek word here literally means the elemental forces of the universe. The elemental forces of the universe. What does that refer to? These are things that we treat as gods. 
but are in fact not gods at all. You all have heard of fake news? Tonight, Paul is teaching us about fake gods. Fake gods. He's saying here in verse 8 that before you became a Christian, you had multiple things in your life that you treated as gods. Who knows what they were? Maybe it was money. Maybe it was success. Maybe it was sex. Maybe it was your good looks. Maybe it was your children. Maybe it was your husband. I mean, it could be literally anything in the universe that you treated as if they were gods. These things are what gave your life meaning and worth. But when you became a Christian, you trashed those fake gods and you bowed the knee to the one true God. And the Galatians did the same. They trashed their fake gods and bowed the knee to the one true God. But now, for the Galatians, the fake gods are calling them home. The fake gods are asking them to go back, to return to worshiping them, just as they will do to you and to me. Sadly for the Galatians, the call of the fake gods is very strong, and it's working. And that's why Paul is addressing it here. This is more important than you realize. It's more important than you realize. The Apostle John wrote a really powerful letter that we call 1 John. In that letter, he writes to Christians about living in the light of holiness, about living in love, and about living in God. It's a profound letter. And John ends that letter with this verse. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, what's bizarre about that is that John never mentions idolatry in the letter. Not even once. So, either John decided to just throw this random line in at the end, or, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I quote, John's last verse is a summary of everything he said in the letter. Okay, if that's true, then what does that mean? It means this. It means that if you fail to live in the light of holiness, if you fail to live in love, if you fail to live in God, it's because of idolatry. It's because of idolatry. Dr. Jones goes on to say, quote, John is teaching us that the greatest danger that confronts us is not a matter of deeds or actions, but of idolatry, end quote. You see, idolatry is underneath every sin. It's the sin underneath the sin. Think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. 
Essentially, God gives us in those commandments an outline of what it means to be human as he created us. And what do those commandments start with? Two commands about idolatry. Two commands about idolatry. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that if you were to go to God today about your sins and your failures, and you were to ask God, what is the source behind these sins? I think he would point you to your idols. Those things that you are treating as if they were God's but they are no gods at all. For example, maybe you have a problem lying. That's your sin. The question then is not, how do I stop lying? It's, why do I feel the need to lie in the first place? What is the thing that I'm treating as God that causes me to lie? Maybe I'm giving godlike powers to those around me. Maybe their thoughts about me matter a little bit too much, and I've made an idol out of their thoughts. So I lie to make them like me. I lie to make them like me a little bit more than they did before, so I exaggerate myself a little bit to make them my friends. Or... Maybe you have a totally different idol here. Maybe you lie because you think of yourself as godlike. Maybe you're full of pride. And so at that point, you would lie to puff yourself up, put others down to maintain your godlike status. But you see where we're going here? There's always a sin underneath the sin, and that's the key. There's an idol underneath there. Now, I love Dr. Jones's definition of an idol because it's so simple. It makes too much sense. Here's what he says. Quote, an idol is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. It is anything that is central to me. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and arouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my attention, my money, and my energy to it effortlessly, end quote. Effortlessly. Now, ironically, most of the time, these things are very good things. They're very good things. There are things like family, things like money, things like your career, things like beauty. I mean, it could be all kinds of different things. And, and most of the time, they're very good things, very good things in and of themselves. But good things become idols in your life when they become ultimate things, things that you try to draw meaning and value from things that are absolutely central to your self-worth. Okay, so that's what the fake gods are. But how do they enslave us? That brings us to point number two. How are we enslaved? In the New Testament, often when the authors speak of idolatry, they use this funny little Greek word. 
that's very difficult to translate in English. It's a word that if you translated it literally, it would be the word over-desire. Over-desire, which of course is not an English word. Uh, but this Greek word appears many times in the New Testament. It appears in Galatians 5.16, Ephesians 2.3, Ephesians 4.20, 1 Peter 2.11, 1 John 2.16, James 1.14, and you get the point. A lot of places this word occurs in the New Testament. The word over-desire. Now, what in the world is an over-desire? Well, here's what it is. An over-desire is not a normal-sized desire for something evil. It is an oversized desire for something good something good. And this is what an idol does to you. It creates an abnormal, perverted desire for a good thing. The idol rushes in and says, hey, if you have me, you'll be happy. If you have me, your life will be complete. And this creates a delusion in your mind. You're convinced this idol will give you something that it will not and cannot give. And this makes you a slave to it. Because you're chasing after a delusion, you will never catch up to it. And it will never, never satisfy you. And therefore, ironically, you chase harder and harder and harder after it. And you make more and more and more illogical demands of it. For example, if you have made your spouse an idol, you will continually demand more and more of them, believing that eventually they will provide you with fulfillment if they can just get their act right. This will drive them crazy. And this will drive you crazy also. Another example, you know, if you've made your career an idol, you will work yourself to death trying to draw meaning and satisfaction from it. This will only lead to frustration and burnout. Another example, if you've made your good looks an idol, you will obsess over your weight and your clothing and your tan, etc. And this will either lead to an extreme amount of vanity or an extreme amount of depression because the figure in the mirror is never as beautiful as you want it to be. Are you following along with me here? These are not normal-sized desires for evil things. Though that's bad, too. <laughs> that's bad, too. But that's not really the root of our biggest problems. It's really not. Our biggest problems, what causes us the most stress and anxiety, are not normal-sized desires for e evil things, but abnormal desires for good things. We look to the things of this world to give us what nothing in this world is equipped to provide. Now, Paul shows us something remarkable here that is very easy to miss. Likely you've already missed it. I've read this a bunch of times and I totally missed it. <laughs> Pretty much every time that I've read it until recently. I think a whole bunch of folks in the American church have completely overlooked this. 
and it's unfortunate. Paul's teaching here becomes astounding once you know who the Galatians are. You see, the Galatians used to be pagans, which means they used to literally worship idols. Literally, they did that. They would pray and offer sacrifices to wooden and stone statues. They would do and say extremely wicked things in the name of honoring their idols made by human hands. And then they were saved by Christ and brought into his kingdom. Amen. But then came some false teachers into their churches, teaching them that they need both faith in Christ and strict obedience to the law in order to be saved, in order to be truly accepted by God. They needed both faith and strict obedience to the law to be saved. I mean, that's the entire reason Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia. It's the whole reason he wrote it, is to combat this heresy. Now, look at verse 9. Verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, do you see how odd this is? Paul is asking the Galatians why they are returning back to idolatry. But they're not doing that, are they? That's not what they're doing. They're not going back to worshiping little stone statues. No, the false teachers are convincing them to obey the law. That's what's happening. They're not, nobody's going back to worshiping little wooden, stone, wooden and stone idols. They're going to the law to look for acceptance and salvation and rest. But you see, for Paul, to live the Christian life by both faith and works is the same thing as worshiping idols made of wood and stone. It's the same thing. It's just as useless, and you will be just as enslaved as you were before. This is what most people miss about our religion. You see, the person who is immoral, doing their own thing and ignoring God and giving themselves away to the things of this world, and the person being very religious, minding their moral P's and Q's and focusing hard on their strict obedience are both guilty of the same thing, rejecting Christ. They are both guilty rejecting Christ and his work. The very religious and the very irreligious are both in the same boat, 
They're both in the same boat. Neither are looking to Christ for salvation and assurance and rest. They are looking to themselves. And this was the main point of the parable of the prodigal son. You see, in reality, Jesus was making the point that there wasn't just one prodigal son in that story. There were two prodigal sons in that story. Both sons alienated themselves from the father. They just did it in two different ways. One did it by being very, very, very bad. And the other did it by being very, very, very good. And really, the very, very good son was in worse shape than the very, very bad one. Why? Because after all his good works, he thought the father owed him. He thought the father owed him. You remember? He said to the father, I have never disobeyed you. You owe me and my friends a fattened calf. You see? The immoral son at least knew he was a failure. He at least knew that he blew it. The problem with the moral son is he thought he was a success. He thought it was a success. Why did he think that? Because he made an idol out of his obedience, out of his good works. Religion is the most dangerous idol of them all. By far. Why? Because you don't see your need for a Savior. You don't see it. Through your good works, you see yourself as your Lord and Savior. Rather than saying, he did it, You're, you are saying, I did it. I did this. And now God owes me. God owes me. This is, in my experience, insanely common in churches today. It's insanely common. It is very sad. People aren't following Christ, they're using Christ. They have absolutely no relationship with God. They're just using God to get what they want. Maybe they want a clear conscience. Uh, maybe they want to get to heaven. Maybe they want God to bless them. I don't know. It could be all kinds of different things. But the, the issue is they want all these things from God but they don't want God. They couldn't care less about God. And they're no different than the elder brother in the story of the prodigal. And they are just as enslaved to idols as pagans are. 
just as enslaved. A friend of mine came down with terminal cancer in his very early 30s. And like a lot of people do when they get really, really scary diagnoses like that is they, they get themselves to church. And so that's what he did. He, he started coming to our church in Gunnerston. He started attending everything. He came to every service. He, he was, I think he was in two life groups. <laughs> he, just, he just wanted to, to jump on that train to find some source of hope. He's just grasping at anything to help him. And he'd been coming for several months. I had built a relationship with him. And one day he heard a very bad report from his doctor. Very discouraging news. And so I took him out to lunch, and he was clearly very upset about this. And he looked at me, and he said, Dustin... If God doesn't heal me of this cancer, what's the point? What's the point of all this? What's the point of me being a Christian? What's the point of me coming to church? What's the point of me being involved in the life groups? What's the, what's the point of me giving my money and my time? And uh, What's the point? I thought for a second about what to say next. Because I, I don't know the right way to talk to a terminal cancer patient who's 30 years old. But I looked back at him and I said, friend, God is the point. God is the point. He's the point of it all. You see, God himself is better, far better than a cancer-free body. Jesus Christ is more precious than anything you could ever find on this earth. In fact, he's more precious than anything you could find. All the precious things combined, he's better. And that's what Christianity is. It's about him. It's not about all the things that he could give you those things are called idols. And I said, friend, you're chasing an idol. And you're chasing something in the long run that will enslave you. And it'll make you hate God. It'll make you despise him. You have to trash those idols. And you have to repent seeking them, seeking a healthy body more than you are seeking Christ. And I don't know if the light bulb went, went off in his heart and his mind right then, but I do know that my friend developed a genuine, tender relationship with God. And I know when he died, just a few months later, that he died with a smile on his face. He died at rest because he had the only treasure that really matters. Brothers and sisters, 
We must be free of our idols that enslave us. Which brings us to our last point. But how? How can we be free? How can we just trash them? If it were that easy, why, don't, why aren't we doing it? Let's look at verse 9. Paul says, But now, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Let me ask you a question. What is a Christian? What's the definition? What is a Christian? A person who comes to church? A person who jumps in a life group? A person who reads their Bible? A person who puts money in the offering? A person who goes on mission trips? No. Pharisees can do all of those things. And much, much better than most Christians can. So what is a Christian? I think Paul just told us. A Christian is a person who knows God. And God knows them. That's a Christian. What Paul is showing us here is the way to deal with our idols. You see, another consequence of idolatry is that whatever idol you give yourself to, you are letting that idol judge you. You're letting that idol judge you. Everything is riding on your performance for those idols. Everything is riding on it. But what Paul is saying here is that true Christianity, true Christianity has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with it. What matters is that God loves you. And God wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. And that's it. That's it. <laughs> it's all that matters. God wants to know you. You. <laughs> How incredible is this? God wants to know you. Sinful, wicked, rebellious you and me. How amazing is that? He wants to know us. And he wants us to know him. That's the entire point of Christianity. It's the whole point. <laughs> to know God and to be known by him. Jesus prayed in John 17, 3. He said, now... This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Folks, eternal life is not about streets of gold. 
It's about knowing Christ. That's what it is. That's what it is. And this life doesn't have to start later. Eternal doesn't mean later on. Eternal is eternal. It starts now. God wants to know you now, and he wants you to know him now. But then the obvious question becomes, but how? How? How could this come about? How can sinful people like you and me have a relationship with a perfectly holy God? How? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And here's how. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. <laughs> it really is just that simple. You and I are sinners. And Jesus Christ took all of our sin and wickedness and rebellion onto himself. He removed it from us and put it on his own back. And God allowed his precious son to be hung on an old, rugged cross for your sake and for my sake in our place. And when you fix your eyes and your heart on that precious lamb <laughs> given for you, you will eventually come to see Jesus for who he really is. The one and only treasure in the universe worth having. He's the one and only treasure worth having. And when you see him as such, all your idols will melt away. They'll melt away. And you will call them just as the Apostle Paul called them, dung. They're dung compared to Christ. As the hymn writer wrote, he said, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and helping hand, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, a calm and heavenly hand. A pure light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. Let's pray.
Father, please lead us to the Lamb. Lead us to the Lamb. We have no hope and no power apart from Him. Lead us to the extravagant and infinite love of your Son poured out for us on an old rugged cross. What a love. What a love we have. What a love, Father, that we take for granted so often. And so we pray that you would give us your spirit tonight. Help us return. Return to your love. Return to your son. So that we might see all of those idols that we cherish as nothing but dung compared to Jesus. <laughs> Help us see the beauty and the wonder your precious son and let us see him for who he really is and that is the most valuable treasure that exists given to us as a free gift <laughs> what a gift father you have given us and your son what a gift.